Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it covers the, the church age. It's the period that we're presently living in. And specifically, when you come down to chapter 3 and verses 14 through 22, what God does there is He outlines for us the very time period that we're presently living in. It's called the Laodicean church period. It is the seventh and final period of church history. In fact, I believe that we're right now living in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 22. I believe that it's time that the people who are on this planet better, better listen up to what the Spirit of God is wanting to say because the hour is drawing very late and the very next thing that is getting ready to take place on this planet is found in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1. And it is the rapture of the church. It's that event that is spelled out for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When heaven will open, the Lord will descend. There will be a trumpet, a voice of the archangel, and all of the people who have died in Christ, that is, their bodies will be resurrected. All those who are alive and remain shall be snatched off the face of this planet bodily to be with the Lord, and we find that in chapter 4. Then in chapter 5, in verse 1, you'll notice that God pulls out a seven-sealed book. This book that He pulls out here becomes the theme of the rest of chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, and on into the first part of, of chapter 8. And this book, as we have seen and we've studied very specifically, this book is the title deed of the earth. And God pulls it out. The, arch, or the, the angel asks the question, who is worthy to open the book? And chapter 5 lets us know that there was nobody that was found worthy to open that book. Nobody in heaven, on earth, or under the earth, nowhere. And then all of a sudden, the Lamb of God stands up on the throne. The Lamb of God, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And according to... What you see in verse 9, because of who he is and because of what he did when he came to this planet as God in human flesh, when he laid his life down as a sacrifice and was slain, that shed blood that Jesus Christ purchased for us when he came to this planet, it redeemed not only man, but it redeemed the earth. And when we come to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1, what we find is the Lord Jesus Christ begins to open seals. He's opening, the, opening those seals for a very specific purpose. What he is doing by opening these seals is he is preparing this earth for that time when he will come back to this planet and along with all of the believers in Jesus Christ from, from every age will come to this planet and will rule and reign. And what he is doing through opening these seven seals is preparing the earth for that time. And as he begins to open these seals, what we begin to find out is that the judgment of God begins to be poured out. Sin becomes just in its unleashed form as He begins to open these seven seals. And this is a period of time that we most commonly refer to as the, the tribulation period. And now, today, we come to the opening of the, the fifth seal. We've already come through as we've come through the first part of chapter 6, we've come through the opening of the first four seals, which reveal to us the, the first four horsemen, that the first seal is open and revealed on this planet was the false Christ, or the Antichrist. That second one was, was opened 
and it represented war and bloodshed on the earth. The third one was open, and it represented famine and economic catastrophe. And last week we looked at the fourth seal, which was a, a period of, of death on this, this planet, pestilence specifically. And now today we come to the, the fifth seal, which revealed to John incredible martyrdom on this planet. Martyrdom. And then look with me at verse 9. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? White robes were given unto every one of them. It was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Now, when we were going through the opening of the, the first four seals, the scene that John saw was on the earth. Remember that? In each one of those, and obviously through what he sees here with the opening of the fifth seal, the scene now is in heaven. And, and let's Look for ourselves at what it is that John actually saw. Let's look, first of all, at the identity of the martyrs. The identity of the martyrs. I mean, we're seeing these people here that John sees, but who are they? Who are these who were slain, as it says, for the word of God and for the testimony which they held? Well, we know this from where we are in the book of Revelation we know that these are not the martyrs of the church age, right? And how do we know that? Well, we know that because the rapture took place back in chapter 4 and verse 1, and we know from what the Scripture teaches us about that event in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16 that the body of every believer in Jesus Christ that died during the church age at the rapture is going to rise up out of the ground and be reunited with its soul and spirit that had already been in the presence of the Lord. And you'll notice in verse 9 here, that's, that's not the way that John sees the martyrs here. The martyrs that he sees haven't received glorified bodies yet. John, look at verse 9. John said he saw their souls. And we'll talk about that in just a little while. But, but the reason these souls that he sees haven't received their glorified bodies when John sees them is because these martyrs are tribulation saints. These are people who were saved after the rapture of the church. They were saved during the tribulation period and they sealed their testimony with their own blood. Now, I want to just make sure that we understand something here. Several weeks ago, in fact, why don't you turn back to Second Thessalonians for, for a minute. Several weeks ago, I, I, brought, I brought us to this, this passage, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And as we were here, I wanted to make sure that every person who was here in this room on that day, I wanted to make sure that we all understood that if we refuse to respond to the truth of the Word of God, and receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior before the rapture of the church, if we won't do it now, 
and we won't do it during the tribulation period. And, and, and the reason for that is because God says, and you can look at it there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, but what it, what it says there is that if you do not receive the truth after it's been delivered to you and allow that truth to save you, then what he says will take place is that God is going to judge you for that during the tribulation period by sending you strong delusion that will cause you to believe the lie of the Antichrist and you'll be damned for all of eternity. Now that's some, some real strong stuff. But that's exactly what that passage says. And again, I want to make sure that everybody that is in this room this morning is, is fully aware of that. If you do not respond to the truth that is being delivered to you now, and when I say now, I mean before the rapture of the church, then after the rapture of the church, you will not respond to it then. And I don't say that to scare you. I don't say that to tick you off. I don't, I don't say that to, for any other reason other than to inform you so that at least you'll know that if you choose to reject the truth of Jesus Christ that is delivered to you from the truth of the Word of God, at least you'll understand what is going to take place as a result of that. But what the Scripture clearly teaches is that if we refuse it now after, we re after it's been delivered, we will not respond to it then. And a lot of folks, I mean, I hear this, I hear it all the time, and, and I mean, I'm... I'm wanting to press this point, lest there be anybody here that, that has the thinking, well, you know, I may not be saved now, I may not respond to it now, but I know that, you know, after the rapture of the church, I'll see all this stuff that was going on, I'll know when all these people are gone that it happened and it was really true then, and that's when I'm going to get saved. And you've got to understand that the same thing, the very thing that is keeping you from receiving the truth now, is the very thing that is going to cause you to receive the lie of the Antichrist then. God said He'll send strong delusion so that you will believe the lie. Now, I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to make sure we set that point lest somebody think this group of people we're getting ready to talk about might be them. It won't be. I would do, but the next one I want you to see here, you can go back to, to Revelation chapter 6. I want you to understand that during the tribulation, there will be multitudes of people who will be saved. You see, it just won't be any of the people who had the opportunity to receive the truth and rejected it. But according to Revelation chapter 7, and I'm not going to get into a lot of detail into Revelation chapter 7, but there's some things we need to see here that are very pertinent to what we're going to see uh, and what we do see in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. But what we see in Revelation chapter 7, and, and, and make sure that you understand how Revelation chapter 7 fits into the whole context here. Revelation chapter 7 is telling us about some things that are taking place during the opening of the first six seals. Okay, now, now, now make sure that you're listening to what I'm saying. Chapter 7 is telling us about some other things that are taking place during the opening of the first six seals that are covered in chapter 6. Chapter 7 
is kind of like a parenthesis where God is letting us know some other things that were taking place during that period of time with the opening of the six seals. And you'll, you'll notice in chapter 8 and verse 1, after he's told us all of those other things, chapter 8 and verse 1, he then picks up with the opening of the seventh seal. So, so understand, chapter 7 is kind of like a, a parenthetical commentary, as it were, that, that goes along with chapter 6. But what chapter 7 tells us is that during the first part of the tribulation period, there is a group of 144,000 Jews who are miraculously converted. And these people become like 144,000 Apostle Pauls who, who give testimony throughout the whole earth. These, these witnesses, these 144,000, they are the true Jehovah's Witnesses, and as a result of their ministry, millions and millions of people will be saved. Look at verse 9. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. John says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes. And we just saw that back in chapter 6 and verse 9. This group is clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. So John sees this incredible multitude before the throne. And you'll notice down in verse 13, that one of the elders asked John if he knows who these people are. And John says to the elder in verse 14, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you know, I don't know who they are, but surely you do. And the elder said to him, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now again, recognize that this, this group of people that he's talking about here are tribulation saints. This is a group of people who all died sometime during the opening of the first six seals. And John said back in verse 9 of chapter 7 that it was such a great multitude that it was impossible to even count them. And the question is, well, how did all of these, these people die? Well, what we're going to see as we continue on in our, our study, not really specifically today, but what we're going to see when we get to Revelation chapter 13 and 14 is that once the Antichrist has established himself on this planet as the world leader during the tribulation period, if during that period of time, if you're still here, if you're going to carry on any type of commerce, that is, if you're going to, if you're going to buy anything like food or whatever, if you're going to carry on any kind of commerce, if you're going to buy, buy anything, if you're going to sell anything, you're going to have to take what is called the mark of the beast or the the mark of the Antichrist, the, the famous 666. And if you don't, according to Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, you'll be put to death. You'll be martyred because of that. And obviously, you put all of that together, the people that we see here in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, that have come under the influence and ministry of the 144,000 Jewish witnesses and have responded to that, these who were killed for their faith and are wearing white robes around the throne, obviously these are the same people that we see 
in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. So, the identity of the martyrs that John sees in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, they're tribulation saints, they're people who are saved during the tribulation period through the ministry of the 144,000 witnesses and people who sealed their testimony with their own blood. Now, look back at Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9, and let's see the second thing. The location. The location of the martyrs. John says in verse 9, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain. John says he saw them under the altar. And that's a very important phraseology in, in your Bible. And the reason that the Spirit of God inspires John to use it here is so we'll tie this phrase in here to what we see in other places in the Word of God so that we can begin to understand the significance of these martyrs. You see, when a blood sacrifice was made in the Old Testament, the blood of that sacrifice was poured in a very specific place. It was poured under the altar. And let me show you that in Exodus chapter 29, second book of your Bible. For those of you who are newer to it, Exodus chapter 29, and verse 11, Exodus 29, <clears throat> verse 11, it says, And thou shalt kill the bullock, before the Lord, by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and thou shalt take the blood of the bullock and put it upon the horns of the altar with thy finger and pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar or under the altar. Turn over to the next book of the Bible, the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 4. Look at verse 7, Leviticus 4, 7. And the priest shall put some of the blood upon the, altars, the horns of the altar of sweet incense before the Lord, which is in the tabernacle of the congregation, and shall pour all the blood of the bullock at the bottom of the altar of the burnt offering, which is at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And you see, you've got to understand, the whole point of the Old Testament sacrifice was the shedding of blood. That was what God was looking for. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22 says that without shedding of blood is no remission. The, the blood was the most important part of any sacrifice. And let me show you why. Right here in Leviticus chapter 17. Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's why it's so significant. The blood was regarded as being the life. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. So make sure that you see that. The blood was so important because the blood was regarded as being the life. And God had a very definite 
placed on the altar where he wanted that blood poured. And it was under the altar. Okay? Now in Revelation chapter 6, when John looked and he saw the martyrs from the tribulation period in heaven, John says, I saw them under the altar. And you know what God's trying to show us, folks? Listen. He's trying to show us the lifeblood of these martyrs has been poured out as an offering and a sacrifice to Him. I know you're filling your notes in right now, but I want you, I want you to, I want that to sink in. I mean, it's a very beautiful thing that the Lord is allowing John to, to see. The lifeblood of these martyrs has been poured out as an offering and a sacrifice to God. And just like the lifeblood of the sacrificial animal was kept under the altar in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, the lifeblood of the martyrs is kept under the altar in the true tabernacle in heaven. Now, and I want to, I want to make sure that we, we all understand this. You see, don't ever forget that that Old Testament tabernacle, we've studied the tabernacle in this church in the last, whatever, last year probably. Okay, when we look at that, that tabernacle, which of course in time became the temple, don't ever forget that all that was was just an earthly representation of something that already existed in heaven. And I say that to you because there's a lot of people who come to, to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. You can go ahead and make your way back there, but now listen very carefully though as you're going. There's a lot of people when they come to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9 and they see these souls under the altar in heaven and they think, yeah, well, you know, God is using symbolic language here uh, to, to refer to the, the altar you know, in the tabernacle. And he, he's trying to get us to, to divert back to that Old Testament tabernacle when you've got to see it's the exact opposite in reality. The altar in the tabernacle in the Old Testament is actually symbolic of the altar, the true altar, which is in heaven. You following that? God's not using symbolic language here to show to relate this to something on earth. What we see on earth was symbolic of what was in heaven. Now, go to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. And, and look at verse 1. Paul says, Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. He's talking about the true tabernacle in heaven that the Lord pitched. He says, I'm not talking now about the representative tabernacle that Moses pitched, but the true one, look at verse 5, who serves unto the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, 
that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. And you see, in the pattern that God showed him was according to the example of the real one that already existed in heaven. And you see, you got to understand, this is not symbolic stuff that we're seeing over here in Revelation chapter 6. Heaven is a real place. There is a real altar in that real place that we called heaven, and that altar in the tabernacle was just a shadow of that. It was just a picture of that. Or, or as he says in, in chapter 9 of Hebrews, right here in verse 24, it was a figure of the true. That one in the Old Testament was just a figure of that true one that's in heaven. And when John saw the martyrs, that's where he saw them as sacrifices under the altar, under the true altar in heaven. Now, if you're a believer in, in Jesus Christ, and, and most of you folks in this room this morning are, when, when you read about the altars, and we're, we're seeing these, these people during the tribulation period, as we've already noted from chapter 7 and verse 9, millions of them. We've studied church history together where we went through and we talked about the martyrs. And I'm telling you, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, when you, when you see one of our brothers and sisters martyred for the very things that we believe, it, it, it does something to you, doesn't it? it, it I mean, it, it just kind of, something, something inside of you just starts kind of, well enough, and we look at that needless and godless shedding of blood, and we think what a, what a tragedy it is, and what, what a terrible thing it is, and what a waste it is, and what a, a triumph of evil and of evil men that it is. And, and listen, all of those things may be true, but what, what John is letting us know here is that the blood that was being shed by the martyrs is something a whole lot more than just tragedy. What he's letting us see here is that it is a sacrifice, an offering made to God and accepted by God and placed under the true altar in heaven. Man, I, I'm, I'm, that's some significance, y'all. I don't know for sure if I've got the ability to communicate the significance of that. That sacrifice in the Old Testament was nothing compared to the blood of the saints. God says it's so special. I've got a place right here, right here under my altar, and I accept this offering. He places that, that life blood under the, under the altar. And, and right here in that, that, that same vein, let's look at the next thing. Letter C. The death of the martyrs. The death of the martyrs. Look at Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9 again. John says, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the Word of God. And the word that's used for their death is a sacrificial word. The word used in reference to the death of a sacrifice. And I want you to notice down in verse 11 that it's a particular kind of death. Verse 11 says of these martyrs, And white robes were given unto every one of them, 
And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren, watch this now, that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. And do you see that? God is saying now that there's still some others who are going to be martyred during this period. And when they're killed, they'll be killed in the same way these others were killed. That should be killed as they were. And again, I'm trying to get you to see that there was a particular way these martyrs were killed. You say, well, well what way is that? Well, over in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, it's called the death. The death. Look in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. It says, And they overcame Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Now, look at it again. Not they loved not their lives unto death, but unto the death. But again, what particular kind of death is it that these martyrs die? And you find it very specifically in chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And look with me at verse 4. Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. Here it comes. And I saw the souls of them that were, what? Beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. You know what the final form of capital punishment on this planet is going to be, folks? Decapitation. Say, okay, well, I'll fill that in my notes there. I got that down. What else you got? You know why that's so significant? And I'm telling you, of all weeks for us to hit this, this week, we just came through one of the most publicized cases of capital punishment, I think probably in history. Maybe maybe somebody else has, has been up there, but the, you know they, they put Carla Faye Tucker to death this past week, and, and of course the whole Christian realm was all involved in all of that, and you know, I, I, regardless of what you you know feel about that whole deal, you know, it, she died a pretty civil death, didn't she? You know, I mean, I, I mean, if you're gonna go, that's that's a pretty good way to to do it. You know, they they injected her with this thing. The way that I what I read about it is she gasped just a little bit and it was over. I mean, you know what? That's a pretty clean way to die. But but check this out. With that kind of means available, okay. Now, now the, the, the martyrdom that we're talking about here, these tribulation saints realize that we're talking about something that is going to begin as soon as, you know, 1998-99, as we move into the early part of the 21st century. Recognize that we've got all of these types of or forms of capital punishment available to us. Not to mention, I mean, you know, the gas chamber is a pretty clean way to go. Uh, and, I mean, you know, you can do, even the electric chair is a pretty clean way to go. But you know what you find? The 21st century form of death upon believers is just like the 1st century form of death 
upon believers. You see, when, when pagan Rome ruled the world in the first century, what you find in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2 is that James, the brother of John, had his head chopped off with a sword. In Romans chapter 16 and verse 4, Paul talked about believers who had laid down their necks. They laid down their own necks. And of course, Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. And shortly after penning those words, he was beheaded in Rome. I want you to listen. In the early days of the 21st century, when papal Rome rules the world, that's exactly what things will be coming back to. The absolute bloodiest form of death. Well, I'll tell you, Darwin was right, wasn't he? And just keeps getting better and better. And again, before we start looking at that from from the human side, because I, I'm ju I'm just telling you, when it, when it, when you really begin to see the way the whole thing comes comes down, and you understand that in the very very near future, that the system of religion that goes by the name of universal Christianity, whose leader claims to be the vicar of Christ on the earth, and you see him today all of the piousness, the pictures, you know, and he's holding the deal. You know, and you see him going into these countries and he's, he's bowing down and kissing the ground. All that piousness that, that just floats out and you realize what's getting ready to happen to our brothers and sisters. I'm telling you, Something happens to you. I, um, it, it's happening to me right now. But, but you know what? And I, and I know where I'm going with this stupid point. I'm blowing my point. The thing we've got to make sure is that we, we don't begin to, to look at this thing from the human side. We've got to make sure that we see it from God's side. And we've got to remember, folks, listen, that these people that we see in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, who are going to have their heads chopped off during the tribulation period, we've got to keep in mind that they are sacrifices to God. And do you realize that according to Acts or Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 8 and verse 15, that all sacrifices to God have their heads chopped off? And just hang on to that for a little while. So you see, don't look at it from the human side. Look at it the way that God does. See Him the way that God sees Him. And, and realize, though, that God is going to hear their cries. And that's letter D on your outline. The cry of the martyrs. And it is a cry for vengeance. So the identity of the martyrs, who are they? Tribulation saints, right? The location of the martyrs, they're under the altar. The death of the martyrs is decapitation. The cry of the martyrs 
vengeance, verse 10 says, and they cried with a loud voice saying, How long? I mean, can you hear that? How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Understand, in the dispensation that we're living in, believers are told to pray for those that persecute us. That's why Jesus prayed during his crucifixion in Luke chapter 23 and verse 34. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's why when Stephen was being martyred in Acts chapter 7 and verse 60, he said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. That's why Paul prayed in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16, I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge, because you see, this is the dispensation of grace. In Romans chapter 12, verses 19 and 20, says that we, we don't, Pray for God to destroy our enemies. We don't pray for God to avenge, avenge, or take revenge upon our enemies. We're told to forgive them. We're told to love them. We're told to do good to them. We're told to overcome their evil with good. And God tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9 that His grace is going to be sufficient for us no matter what situation we find ourselves in. He tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 that we're never going to face any temptation that's going to be more than we are able to bear. And again, this is the dispensation of grace. We live under the covenant of love. But listen, during the tribulation, it's a different dispensation then, folks. The day of grace it's over. The, the tribulation is a time of judgment. And, and these martyrs are crying out knowing that according to Psalm 9 and, and verse 12, Jehovah God, listen to it, maketh inquisition for blood. He remembereth them. He, listen, He forgetteth not the cry of the humble. God's not going to forget the cry of these people. They're crying out in accordance with Psalm 94, verses 1 through 3. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show Thyself, lift up Thyself, Thou Judge of the earth, render a reward to the proud. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? That's the way they're crying out. You'll notice in verse 11. Are, are you in chapter 6? You'll notice in verse 11 that God doesn't rebuke them for their prayer. He, he responds by giving them a white robe. And it's His stamp of approval upon their request. Revelation 19.8 says that the, the white garment is the righteousness of the saints. Listen, the prayer that they're praying is most definitely according to the will of God in this dispensation during the tribulation period. But you'll notice also that God doesn't answer by pouring out His vengeance at that very moment. Now, their, their cry for vengeance is heard, but the, the answer that they were looking for is delayed. The second part of verse 11 says, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, 
until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Now, now let, let me tell you something. The vengeance is going to come. God is going to answer their cry. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says that He'll respond in flaming fire, taking vengeance upon all them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And as we continue on in the book of Revelation, uh, our study of this thing, we're going we're gonna to see that vengeance. We're going to see the answer to that. But for now, during this period of delay and answering, God tells them three things. First, He tells them, I've heard you. I've heard you. Second, He tells them to rest. Thirdly, he assures them that even though it may not look like it, like it by all the evil that befalls good people, he assures them that he was still in control, and that he was simply working out his purpose to its ultimate and certain end. God says, I know what I'm doing here. And it's just not time yet because there's still a few other things that have to take place in order for my purposes to be fulfilled. And you know what? I, I don't care what dispensation you live in. Now listen, okay, because this, you, you can learn something. Some of you folks are right there right now. You're praying about something, and you pray, and you pray, and you're saying, Oh Lord, how long? Come on, I, I, I keep praying this. You know what? We can, we can learn some things from what we see here. With every prayer that you pray that is in His revealed will, you can claim those, those same three things from God. First of all, that He hears you. First John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 says, And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And if we know that He hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. He is going to answer but the answer may not always be on our time schedule. It's going to be on His time schedule. But knowing He's heard us, and knowing He will answer, we can what? We can rest. Philippians chapter six, or chapter four, verses six and seven says, "Be careful for nothing." In other words, don't be worried about anything. But in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Listen, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. And you see, if He's keeping your heart and your mind, you can, you can rest. Because Romans 8.28 says that regardless of what the circumstances look like, for those of us who love Him, God is busily working all things according to His own divine purpose for our good and for His glory. So hey, if you're in the midst of praying for something and God's not answering, hey, Revelation chapter 6 and verse 11 is a great place for you to hang your hat. God hears you. He will answer. You can rest. And He's got it all under control. So don't worry about it. Don't worry. But, but I do want you to see, God, He heard the cries 
of these martyrs. He heard their prayers. And, and when, when his purposes were accomplished, the answer would come and, and vengeance would be meted out upon those who had shed their blood. Not simply for vengeance' sake, but in order to clear the earth from evil and make it a suitable place, as we were talking about earlier, for the Lord Jesus Christ to come back and set up his millennial kingdom on this earth. So the vengeance will come. Look next, letter E on your outline. <clears throat> the crime of the martyrs. The crime of the martyrs. I mean, you know, we've been talking about this incredible bloodshed. And what was this? This, this terrible atrocity that these, these people had actually done that had caused them to be martyred in the first place. Look again at verse 9. John says, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. You know what their crime was? It was their testimony. He says they were slain. Here's the reason they were slain. For the Word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now what's interesting about that is if you go back to chapter 1, chapter 1, do you realize that this is the same exact thing that John was in tribulation for as he had been exiled to the Isle of Patmos back at the end of the first century? The Roman government had had put persecution upon John. All the rest of the disciples had already been martyred and here is John at the end of the first century been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. And he says in chapter 1 and verse 9, I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos, here it is now, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know something, folks. In the first century, when you were a man or a woman of this book, and it was made evident by the testimony of your life, I mean, you didn't just believe the Word of God. You didn't just read the Word of God. You didn't just know the Word of God, but you lived the Word of God. I want you to know something. In the first century, there was a price to pay for living out this Christian life thing. And what you find out is if you go back and you check the record of history, strangely enough, it was the same way in the 2nd century, the 3rd century, and the 4th century, to the point that by the time of Constantine, around 325 A.D., do you realize that there had already been over 2 million martyrs? In just those first several centuries. And you know why they were martyred? For the Word of God and for the testimony which they held. After Constantine, rather than pagan Rome meeting out the persecution, it simply became papal Rome. And so the persecution upon true Bible-believing, Bible-living Christians, it continued on in the 5th century, the 6th century, the 7th, the 8th, the 9th, the 10th, the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, the 14th, the 15th, the 16th, the 17th, the 18th, and the 19th. I mean, folks, do you understand that in some parts of the world, the Inquisition did not end until the period of time when this church was starting in about 1858? I mean, 
in parts of Spain and other parts of the world, it was still going on. And over that period of time, listen, 50 million martyrs who died because of this book that they held in their hands. For the Word of God and the fact that they didn't just hold it in their hands. They lived it out through their testimony. You could look at their life, even if they weren't holding the book, you could look at that life and you knew that they were under the possession of Jesus Christ. And what we find here in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9 is that it's not going to be over. In the 21st century, in the tribulation period, it's all going to be there again. In fact, it'll be the greatest period of suffering and persecution upon believers that the world has ever seen. Remember Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9? John said that the number of the tribulation martyrs was such a great multitude that no man could even count them. And do you remember as we were coming through the first four seals, we saw that, that even though those seals hadn't been opened yet, remember we were able to see the shadow that was being cast on the earth by those, those, those seals, that those things that were taking place that were a whole lot like everything that we were going to see in the tribulation period that are going on in the 20th century. And, and you see, because we're, because we're Americans, and because we live in a, in a Disney World type of existence, and because the media, don't ever forget this, is controlled by the prince of the power of the, what? Of the air. You see, we tend to think that the 20th century is, well, it's different. In the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, thirty, forty, fifty, sixth, seventh, eighth, nineteenth, and twenty-first. You see, the twentieth century is just this little, little gap in there, and well, there's not as high a price to pay for the word of God and for having that testimony that the the God of this book controls your life. But now, listen. Do you realize? Do you realize that the twentieth century has produced more martyrs for Jesus Christ than any other century in the church age. In fact, listen to me, listen. This century has produced more martyrs than all of the other centuries combined. not sure about that. According to statistics that were put out a decade ago, do you realize that every year 330,000 believers are martyred for Jesus Christ because of the Word of God and for the testimony that they hold? 330,000 a year. Almost a thousand people this very day are going to die for the Word of God and for the testimony that they hold. It, it happens every single day and nobody ever talks about it. An article came out in Reader's Digest in August 19, 
97, just you know, last August, entitled The Global War on Christians, and it identified it. You ever heard about it? You see, the world's too interested in making sure the gays have their rights. And the, the animals have their rights to ever concern themselves with the most horrendous slaughter that is going on right now under their noses. And somebody says, well, I'll tell you what, man. Somebody's got to do something about that. Don't fight. you got to understand, verse 11 applies right now, too. God knows what's going on. It's all unfolding according to his purpose. Nobody's going to be martyred that's not right according to the plan. You see, he already knows who's going to be martyred. You know what? Maybe some of the people in this room might have that blessed occasion. So, uh, listen, don't fight it. But on the other hand, don't be oblivious to it either. And go fat, dumb, and happy through life as an American going, ain't it grand to be a Christian, ain't it grand? Let me just ask you something. If this past week, without you knowing it, your life was, was being watched every single moment of every single day of the past seven days to, to see what place the Word of God had in your life. And, and to see if, if they could find irrefutable evidence that the God of this book had laid a claim on your life. And if they found the evidence, they would martyr you for the Word of God and for your testimony. And just based on last week, they watched you every single minute. Would you be modest? Because of the place this book has in your life? Because the testimony that the God of this book lives inside of you and controls you, that you're not your own, you've been bought with a price? You see, it's just real easy because we, you know, we live in Disney World America and we, we forget that what the Bible says here is that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Doesn't matter where you live. Doesn't matter what century you're in. Everybody who gives testimony that that book and the God of that book controls their life will suffer persecution. Now, you, you may not be martyred because we live in this fairyland existence here in America, but there ought to be some recognizable, some if you're living a godly life, if this book controls your life, there ought to be some evidence of that by the persecution that you receive. We got one more, uh, one more point to hit here, and uh, we probably ought to try to do it because we got one little point that's just going to be hanging out there next week, and it's going to be real difficult to pull everybody in. And I'll try to get through this as quickly as we can here. It's letter what on your outline? 
Yeah. I love you. Okay. The visage of the martyrs. V I S A G E. And, and I, man, I, I really struggled for the word. I, I use that word because it's a Bible word. Uh, and, and, okay, the, the word, what it, what it does is it describes what you look at when you see, when you look at someone and you see them. You see their, their visage. It's taken from Isaiah 52 and verse 14 where it talks about what we would have looked at if we would have looked at Jesus during his crucifixion. The verse says his visage was so marred more than any man in his form, more than the sons of men. And, and, and what I'm trying to get you to see here is, is what it was that John actually saw as he looked under the altar and he saw these tribulation saints. He says in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9, look at it again. He says, I saw under the altar, what? The souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now, now check this out. Okay, now don't let that just blow by you. He looked and he saw their souls. And again, he's not speaking figuratively or symbolically here. He says he saw their souls. You see, now remember, he's, he's looking into heaven at these tribulation saints who had been martyred. Now, their bodies were still somewhere under the ground, someplace on the earth during that period of time. At this point in the tribulation period, they obviously had not received yet their glorified bodies because they hadn't yet experienced the resurrection yet. But the strange thing is, is there was something that John looked and saw. Now, let me ask you something. Have you ever seen a soul? A soul? But check this out. Not only were these souls something you could see, but verse 10, they also had a voice. And also from verse 10, they had a memory. And not only that, they felt emotion. They're wanting vengeance. They remember the blood that was shed on the earth. And what's even stranger yet is that they had to have some kind of bodily form. Because those white robes in verse 11, they were held up by something, weren't they? And it wasn't their bodies, it was their souls. I mean, isn't that a trip? These are souls in heaven. Now, now turn over real quick to, to Luke chapter 16. Let, let me show you some souls in hell now. And, and some of you that to this point are planning to reject Jesus Christ understand some things here. Luke chapter 16 a lot of people want to teach that Luke 16 is a parable and, and not something that Jesus uh, was saying actually took place. But you'll notice that verse 19 says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. And one thing that is consistent through the parables is that proper names are not used. And so that we wouldn't pass this off as a parable. Jesus not only gives the beggar's name, he identifies both of these characters as certain men. Not a made-up character, but a certain man. And verse 20 goes on and says that Lazarus was laid at this rich man's gate, 
and he's full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Okay, so both of these guys die, and their bodies were placed in the ground. They were buried, it says. Now, because Jesus hadn't died and, and been buried and, and rose again from the dead yet, the soul of Lazarus, who was a believer, his soul was carried into a place that is identified here as Abraham's bosom. It was a holding place until Jesus Christ rose from the dead and led captivity captive, a, a place that was just a, a, a holding place, a place of peace and refuge and, and all of that. The soul of the rich man, however, who wasn't a believer, was carried into hell. And, and watch this now. In hell, verse 23, now where's his body? It's in the ground, right? Where's his soul? In hell. In hell, this rich man lifts up his eyes. You know what you find? Souls have eyes. You realize? Some of you are going to be able to see things in hell. He lifts up his eyes, being in torment. So what do we learn there? Souls also feel pain. And seeth Abraham afar off. There's those eyes again. And Lazarus in his bosom. He recognizes Lazarus, so we know that he's also got a, a memory. Right? Verse 24. And he cried, so he also has a voice, and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger. Okay, so souls have fingers that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. The souls also have tongues and experience thirst. He says, for I am tormented in this flame. So if you put it all together, the souls see, they speak, they think, they feel. They have eyes, mouth, tongues, and fingers. And obviously they have some sort of bodily form that is recognizable. I mean, by looking at Lazarus's soul, the rich man was able to recognize that as being Lazarus, right? And what we find out from the Bible is that inside of these human bodies that all of us wear is a soul that is shaped just like what? Just like our body. You remember in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image after our what likeness. And what was God like? He was three, and yet he was one. Right? And, and the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 7, when God actually did this, when he was going to make man in his likeness, what he did, listen to it, it says that he, he reached down into the dust, of the ground, what part of the man did he make? His body. When you croak, that's where you go back to, that dust. He, he, he took the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. That word breath is all the way through the Old Testament translated what? Spirit. And man became a living soul. And what we find out from this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is man is a three-part being, and yet he's one. You know what we find out? He's a whole lot like that. 
My hands a whole lot. Frankie, I know you're wanting me. Man's a whole lot like this, isn't he? This is a football. I won't go there. <laughs> but you know what? This, this football is made up of how many parts? Men? What is it? Three. The ladies are going. You see, it, it, it's got a, it's got a, we call it pigskin, girls. It's got a, a pigskin exterior, but inside of this thing, there is a rubber bladder. Okay, so there's two parts. Where's the third? It, it's the air that's in there. You see, this is, this is what God wanted us to be. Now, When we chose sin, you know what happened to us? We died spiritually. No more spirit dead. But you see, we still have this pigskin exterior here, and if I reach inside, I pull out that that bladder that's on the inside. And, and you see, in order for this football to look like this, it's got to have one of these inside of it. And what this looks like when it's full of spirit, air, is a whole lot like this. It's got that, it's got that same exact shape. You see, that's what, that's what God's showing us here about these, these souls. It's just like all of us. And you see, what I wanted you to see this morning is that John looked and he saw that soul of the redeemed person. And it looked a whole lot like their bodies. But it was their soul. And some of you that are in this room this morning, I'm not trying to be offensive to you. God intended you to be this and this is what you are you died spiritually the spirit of God does not live inside of you if the spirit of God lived inside of you you'd be a complete person the Bible says in the book of Colossians chapter 2 and verse 10 and we are complete in him some of you going through life without life being inside of you. And one of these days, you will draw your last breath. And what the body says, or, or the Bible says, is that when we die, our soul departs. You know what they do? They take this exterior and they bury it in the ground. But that soul still goes somewhere. All of us are going to enter eternity in a soul. 
some will be in heaven, and others are going to be like this rich man in Luke chapter 16. And you will think, and you will see, and you will hear, and you will feel. And for all eternity, you will be separated from God. And I believe God brought you here today because He wanted to interrupt all of that. God wanted you to see that there is a very real eternity that every single one of us are going to enter into. And unless in this life you have come to the place where you have recognized that you are a flat tire, you recognize that you are a sinner before God. And when you do that, what the Bible says is He takes up residence inside of us by His Spirit and He breathes life into us and we enter into eternity with Him and so shall we ever be with the Lord. But the reality is, folks, we're all going to spend eternity someplace. If God's speaking to your heart right now, before we cash it all in, we take our little notes, put them in our Bible and say, wow, never knew all that stuff, and go out and get in our car and go on through life like this didn't happen or that these things aren't really going to take place in the very near future. For you to do that, it's going to be just an absolute horrendous crime. Because you see, we don't come to God on our terms. The Bible says that no man comes but that the Father draw him. And you see, for some reason it is God brought you to this service today, and you can you can go through the list of all of the, the human reasons. The thing you've got to be asking yourself right now is did God draw you to this service today? So that the Spirit of God could take the Word of God and convict you of your sin, His righteousness, and the judgment that is to come. That's why the Bible says the Spirit is given for those three reasons. And if today, if the Spirit of God is showing your need, the Bible says today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your heart. If God's dealing with you today, if God's drawing you today, respond to Him. The purpose of the service, again, is not to scare you, not to freak you out, but for God's sake, to inform you so at least you understand what it is that you're rejecting. Let's pray. Lord, I, I do pray this morning that you would take these truths that we've seen from the book of Revelation this morning, and I, I pray that you would take them to the hearts of people here that have never received Jesus Christ. And I pray that today their souls would have the Spirit of God breathe life into them where there is presently death. Lord, even now, draw people to Yourself. May this be the day of salvation for people in this world. For all of us that do know you, again, would you please cause these truths to purify us, 
as we await your coming in these last days. May you put an urgency inside of us to reach every person that we possibly can with the gospel. We pray that you would open doors of utterance for us even this week. But Lord, save people from this service. We pray in Jesus' name.